Hey everyone, this is Jason Shepard, and you're listening to the Instrument Pilot Podcast by M0A.com, where a good pilot is always learning. We spend a lot of time talking about spatial disorientation, but what does it really mean to us and how can we combat it? Hey everyone, this is Jason Shepard of M0A.com. You're listening to the Instrument Pilot Podcast brought to you by M0A.com and our number one rated online ground school, groundschoolacademy.com. Full IFR written test prep, check ride prep, and certainly just making you a smarter, safer, real world pilot. Visit groundschoolacademy.com to check that out and learn more. You know, in this age of technology, you would think we would get rid of spatial disorientation and these sort of accidents that pop up, but the The accident analysis we're going to do actually occurred in a Cirrus aircraft. Again, this is by no means a knock on Cirrus aircraft. Um, It's more so to illustrate a point that I believe Cirrus um, is, I don't know if I want to say superior, but certainly um, a a top of mind when you say... um, aircraft and technology in the same sentence, it'd be hard to not mention Cirrus. Now, there's plenty of other great aircraft manufacturers in that four-place single-engine space. Uh, Mooney is making a very, very strong, strong comeback with the cash infusion they have. Um, We're doing a lot to, to add technology to the cockpit and increase situational awareness in hoping to decrease spatial disorientation. However, sometimes that can have the opposite effect. And sometimes too, like you'll see in this NTSB report I'm gonna read to you, sometimes you can have all the technology in the world, yet the pilot still makes a boneheaded mistake. And it's a chain of events that lead up to this accident. If you've seen my JFK Jr. accident analysis seminar, well, you know exactly what I'm talking about, the chain of events that lead up to that accident. Let me read to you this this NTSB report, and then we'll kind of dive into it and dissect it a little bit more. The pilot was flying an RNAV GPS approach when the accident occurred. The air traffic controller did not provide approach clearance to the accident airplane until it was inside the final approach fix and 1,000 feet above the final approach fix crossing altitude. The controller also issued a late turn to intercept the approach course and he did not issue a descent clearance because his attention was directed to resolving a separation conflict involving two other aircraft. So this poor gentleman, and I think if you've done any amount of instrument flying, you've kind of been hung out to dry like this before. Has that ever happened to you guys? Like, geez, this guy just blew me right through the localizer. Or geez, I could really use that. Those magic words I call cleared for this approach because I could really use to descend right now or make this turn right now. We've all been hung out to dry real quick, but It happens to this guy in two big ways, not able to descend and thrown through the localizer course. Now, what do you and I do in that situation? Well, usually I say, listen, can you just go back and vector me around again? 
It's not quite what happened, though. Let's continue the story. According to the data recorded by the airplane's primary flight display, the pilot disconnected the autopilot after receiving the approach clearance and the airplane began a rapid descent. About 40 seconds later, the airplane rolled left and tracked left of the approach course. The airplane's ground proximity warning alert activated and the airplane subsequently rapidly reversed roll and pitch directions consistent with an attempt by the pilot to correct the airplane's hazardous flight path. The airplane continued to roll right and pitch to a nose-high attitude before rapidly transitioning to a nose-down attitude of more than 85 degrees. I want to pause there for a second to let that set in. A nose-down attitude of more than 85 degrees. 90 degrees is straight down. So more than 85 degrees, we're, we're literally pointing straight down, if not more, almost a hair bit upside down is kind of what they make it sound like. As the airplane descended below a 900-foot cloud layer, the pilot rolled the airplane to wings level and made a high G-force pull-up until ground impact. Given the pilot's high workload due to deficient approach control services and possible distraction while operating in instrument conditions and subsequent loss of airplane control, it is likely that the pilot experienced spatial disorientation. Unreal. And again, unfortunately, this happened in a, in a Cirrus aircraft, a very technologically advanced aircraft, or TAA as they're sometimes called meant to enhance and prevent these sort of situations. And you can argue, geez, why didn't he pull the chute? I'm thinking, if I'm in it at 900 feet in a 85 degree or greater nose-down attitude, how much time do I have to pull the chute? Uh, you know, certainly not enough time for it to do anything. Uh, and I'm certainly exceeding any I'd be curious to know what the actual speed was uh, in that uh, in that downward descent. Uh, I don't think the parachute would have even been a, a viable option in that case. But let's talk about the chain of events that led up to this accident that we're talking about today. And again, I don't like talking about accidents, especially accidents where there's fatalities. But I do believe we'd be doing an injustice to these individuals if we didn't learn from their stories. And that's why I'm teaching on them today. The chain of events of our accident, and again, we don't know the whole history. We don't know if this guy could pass the I'm safe checklist, the PAVE checklist, what his attitude was going into the flight that day. We don't know all that data, but maybe there's something there. Maybe there's not. What we do know and where the story starts for us is when he was hung out to dry by the controller. The controller was distracted with two other aircraft and, and making sure they had positive separation. And he hung the Cirrus pilot out to dry. And if you've done any amount of instrument flying, you know that situation where you've been sent through a localizer. You're thinking, there's a localizer, I'm on it, but he hasn't cleared me for the approach or he hasn't issued me a turn. I've just got to keep on flying right through it. We've all been there. If you haven't, you will, I promise. 
How you handle that situation is you say, no big deal, Mr. Miss Controller. Listen, I know you're busy. Could you just, would you mind just vectoring me back around for it again? Uh, I'd, I'd rather do it that way. Instead, this guy was thrown through the localizer. He was a thousand feet above the final approach fix crossing altitude. And what did he decide to do? Once he did hear the magic words that he was cleared for the approach, he turned off the autopilot because he knows the autopilot won't descend as fast as he needs to. And in IFR conditions, throws the airplane on down, banks it to the left to get back on the approach course, and tries to lose a thousand feet and find that glide slope. Not a good idea. And hopefully you're listening to this kind of shaking your head going, yeah, I don't think that was very smart. It goes to show you though, we can add all the technology we want into a cockpit and pilots can still make boneheaded mistakes. This guy was a decent pilot. He had quite a bit of flight time. He had a decent amount of time in a Cirrus aircraft. And he thought he could kind of make the approach his own or at least get back onto that approach. And what happened? When you add a descent like that with a bank to the left in the clouds and next thing you know, holy smokes, I am hauling butt here. Here comes my, here comes my localizer. Let me bank to the right. My ground speed so fast. So let me slow it down. So I pull up a little bit. You experience all those G's, all that inertia kind of takes you up, 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 and it ends up breaking into a stall and finds himself rolling to the right and a nose down attitude after the, the, the st- really not even a stall, just kind of pitched up, pitched up with a nose right attitude, just kind of continue to break right 85 degrees or more nose down heading towards the ground. Breaks out at the 900 foot mark, uh, which is where that cloud layer was. So it's not like it was an easy IFR day, you know, clouds at 900 feet, you know, that, that's a, that's a precision approach. Uh, maybe a a decent, you know, non-precision approach that can get you down to like 600 foot MDA or something. But still, we know 900 feet is not always 900 feet, depending on what the clouds are actually doing. Breaks out at 900 feet, tries to pull up and imagine the G-forces of being in a 85 degree nose down attitude or more and trying to pull that airplane up. Uh, the G-forces must have just been unreal. Again, we can ask, why didn't he pull the chute? I don't believe there was time. I think he had such a high workload given the situation he put himself into. And those of you who've flown a Cirrus know it's a little bit of work to get that cover off, pull that pin, and it takes a little bit of muscle to pull that chute. Now, I only know that from doing it you know, in, in sims and, and seeing the, the amount of strength it does. I can't remember what they say, 40 pounds. I can't remember what they say it actually takes to pull that down. But in that high G-load situation, geez, I got, at Oshkosh, I got to fly with Team Aeroshell. And we got to do some pretty cool things. We got to do some, some rolls, some loops, that sort of stuff. Very, very great, great experience. Um, and I was trying to film it with my phone all the while, of course, trying to take in the moment, enjoy it. I remember there's a few times the G's were so intense, I am struggling to hold my phone where it is. My phone keeps slipping down into my lap because I wasn't strong enough to hold my phone up. So you want to make the argument, why didn't he pull the chute? Well, trust me, I know what positive and negative G's can do to your coordination, your strength, and your ability to even reach up to the roof to try to, try to make that happen. Let alone, I don't think, even if it was a, a, a zero G situation or a, I'm sorry, a one G situation, I don't believe he would have had the time 
uh, to do that given 900 feet, 85 degrees, nose down. But here's what I'm getting at, guys. All accidents are a chain of events. If this gentleman would have just said, listen, I got two strikes against me already. I'm through the localizer and I'm a thousand feet high. Can I go around and get re-vectored? And it's different maybe if you're on a training flight and it's beautiful, clear and 10 VFR day. You know, I might actually continue that approach just to make a point with my students saying, listen, we wouldn't do this if it was real IFR conditions say, I'm letting you do this just to make a point on how hard it is to get back and get on a decent approach. I might let them do that. And that's a big might. In IFR conditions, no chance. In a real world scenario, no chance. Getting thrown through the localizer is enough for me to get asked to get vectored back around. And I might be a pain in the controller's butt for asking to get vectored back around. But I can tell you this accident caused a whole lot more pain for that controller via paperwork and who knows, uh, potential lawsuits and loss of job and that sort of stuff because um, of what happened here. You know, again, we can twist anything either which way to, to point blame. Uh, obviously, the pilot shouldn't have continued on, um, but he did. Maybe the controller should have offered to vector him back around. I, I don't know. There, there's just so many ways to play this situation here. But here's my point, guys. You don't always have to do what the controller asks you to do. If you're through the localizer, a thousand feet above the final approach fix, and the controller says, hey, now, sorry, you're clear for the approach now. Let me know when you're down safe on the ground to cancel IFR here with me. And you think, well, he cleared for me for the approach. I got to do the approach. No, you don't have to do the approach. You are the pilot in command, and you have the final authority as to what happens in that aircraft. And that controller might get a little bit fussy with you. They might vector you out a little bit further than you wanted them to. But trust me, it's a lot less paperwork to get a little bit fussy than it is to, to file this accident report, what happened, and the investigation that ensued from it. Controllers aren't always right. Pilots aren't always right. We prove, we prove both those in this story right here. Let's take some of the chains out of this accident. If you would have asked to be re-vectored, the accident wouldn't have happened. If the controller would have said, listen, I'm so sorry, let me re-vector you, the accident wouldn't have happened. If the controller would have been better at handling the, the other situation and kept this guy on the proper instrument approach, we wouldn't have a story to talk about today. And there's probably a lot of other variables that we don't know there. If this pilot would have, maybe maybe he accepted being cleared for the approach and kind of tried to make a correction towards it and realized there's no chance I'm going missed. Because here's the thing, you can go missed at any point on the instrument approach. I can go missed before the initial approach fix. I can do whatever it takes. I'm the pilot in command. I have that final authority and responsibility for the safety of this flight. And if I feel something's not safe, I can go missed at any altitude, any point of that approach. Too many times we think as instrument pilots, the only time I go missed is when I can't see the runway or the runway environment. That's when I go missed. No, you can go missed anywhere at any time. And all you have to do is let the controller know that. That's my point of the story, guys. I don't like talking about accidents. I don't like talking about gloom and doom type stuff. But again, we'd be doing a disservice by not learning from these accidents. 
Obviously, I want to hear your feedback. Be sure to shoot me an email. I appreciate you guys for listening to the Instrument Pilot Podcast. Thank you for your great reviews we've been receiving. Thank you for helping to make us number one in iTunes in the aviation category. You guys are just such a blessing to us. Thank you for sharing this with your friends. That is how the good word of M0A.com gets spread and we continue to create safer, smarter pilots. And on that note, if there's anything we can do this week to help make you a safer, smarter pilot, please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. Guys, enjoy the rest of your day. And most importantly, remember that a good pilot is always learning. Have a great day, guys. See ya.